Well, when you came in this morning, I hope you noticed the table there in the commons that had a number of elements there on that table. Uh, On the table, there were uh, three really main things. First, there was a first century oil lamp. There was some mustard seed. And there were four oil paintings, also, by the way, in your bulletin. Now, I do have to make a confession The person who painted those paintings, the oil paintings, is David Dillard. Uh, If you've been around Grace for a while, you know David Dillard. Uh, He wanted to remain anonymous, but um, uh, because of my blunder, his name is now listed uh, beautifully here in this bulletin insert. Um, But uh, here's what's amazing. He's not in here. He's in the first service. I'm going to tell you what I didn't tell first service. Uh, He's only been doing this for like three months. Um, And when when you look at, at what he's done... Now, he's an architect by trade, but um, still, uh, he was able to translate his skills as an architect into oil paint when he retired, and I encourage you to check those out before you leave. Uh, But truly amazing uh, what he's been able to do. Now, this project was kind of the brainchild of a new group here at Grace called Grace Creatives. And if you're interested in Grace Creatives, there's some information on the backside of this insert in your bulletin. But Grace Creatives started just a few months ago, a number of people who come together in order to share their creative and artistic expressions, to learn from one another, to spur one another on, to be a creative outlet for those who are artistically inclined. And at our last meeting, of which I am an unworthy member because I have no artistic ability whatsoever. Uh, We came up with the idea of from time to time in this sermon series through the Gospel of Mark for those who are able to creatively present on the particular passage we're looking at. And so these four oil paintings um, are really an artistic expression of what we're going to see together this morning. Uh, But art is a form of indirect communication. And for a person who's simply passing by, you could perhaps walk by that table and not really notice the beauty that's depicted. But any art, for the one who stops and contemplates, who's really willing to peer in and consider... Art opens the eyes and you see more than you originally noticed. And that's why it's well said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Some, like David Dillard, paint with oil. Some, like me, are more paint-by-numbers kind of people. (laughs) And I even struggle with that. But Jesus painted with stories. To be more specific, Jesus painted with parables. And for some, parables are nothing more than stories. They're in one ear and out the other, and you can just pass them by and not really give them much thought. But for those who are truly listening, for those who are willing to truly contemplate, the parables of Jesus open your eyes, open your heart, and open your mind to see things you didn't first observe. And this morning, we're going to jump into a number of Jesus' parables in Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark 
chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to invite you to grab the outline in your bulletin as well. And you're going to need your outline this morning because we are not going to go in verse-by-verse order this morning. We're going to cover all the verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, but we're going to look at it a bit out of order. And the reason we're doing this is because first, number one on your outline, what we're going to do this morning is ask and answer the question, well, what are parables? And we're going to use a few places in Mark chapter 4 to answer that question where Jesus himself explains what it is he's doing with parables. Then we're going to look at three parables, the parable of the soils, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. So we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. So let's begin by first looking at number one on your outline, a number of passages here in Mark chapter 4 asking and answering that question, well, what are parables? What are parables? Notice Mark chapter 4, verse, verses 1 and 2 first. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching. Let's pause right here. Now here John Mark tells us, he really repeats what we saw in chapter 3, where once again the popularity of Jesus is rising and rising. There's multitudes, there's crowds of people gathering around Jesus. Jesus has to go out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee or at the shore of the Sea of Galilee in order to distance himself from the multitudes of people around him. But now here in Mark chapter 4, Mark tells us that Jesus begins teaching these people, verse 2, in parables. So you can picture this in your mind, just Thousands of people perhaps gathering around Jesus. He gets himself in a boat. He pulls off the shore a little bit just to distance himself. And now he's teaching the crowds of people there lining the shore of the Sea of Galilee while Jesus is standing in a boat and he's teaching them using parables. By the way, Jesus was not the first person to teach using parables. In fact, you see parables mentioned by um, Quintilian and Aristotle and other rhetoricians. Parables were a very popular form of teaching, of communication. But what's unique about Jesus is a very significant portion of Jesus' teaching comes in the form of parables. Scholars have estimated that about a third of Jesus' recorded teaching in Scripture was parables. There are about 60 different parables of Jesus that you see as you compare the Gospels. And so Jesus seems to love parables as a form of teaching. But once again, what are parables exactly? What are parables? Simply put, parables are stories. Parables are stories where you take everyday imagery in order to teach about something much more complex. You take a simple story to teach something about spiritual things, something much more complex. So parables are stories, but they're much more than stories. Parables are stories that demand 
deep contemplation. And I think that's a great definition. Parables are stories that demand deep contemplation. One scholar of parables says that parables tease the mind into active thought. Parables are stories that demand deep contemplation that tease the mind into active thought. Another scholar of parables says that parables teach the disciples to see the world in an unexpected way. You see things in a new perspective. They invite an appropriate response in attitude and behavior. In other words, parables aren't designed just to tell stories, but they're designed to initiate action, a change of attitude or behavior in the listener. Or to borrow a phrase from philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he says that parables find a way in the back window of the mind. And they confront what one thinks is reality. They come in unexpectedly. They tease the mind into active thought. They demand deep contemplation. In other words, parables are pretty complex. They're simple stories, but with very complex meaning. And because of this, parables can also be very confusing. If you are to open up commentaries in the Gospel of Mark or textbooks on parables, you will find uh, vast differences on how scholars think these should be interpreted. And thankfully, we're in good company if we get confused by parables because the disciples, as we see, also got confused. Skip ahead to Mark chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus tells a parable that we'll come back to, but then in Mark chapter 4, verse 10, notice, as soon as he, Jesus, was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, so the twelve plus some others, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, verse 11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Here quoting from the book of Isaiah. And verse 13, he, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So notice, Jesus tells the parable of the soils, which we'll see here in just a minute, and then afterwards his disciples come and they're confused. They ask Jesus, you know, why are you teaching in parables? Can you help us understand what's going on? The disciples don't know why Jesus uses such enigmatic speech. And so he explains to them the purpose he has in using these parables. And notice specifically verse 11. The content of these parables Jesus says, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside, they get everything in parables. This kind of piggybacks off what we saw last week, the inside is outside and outside is inside idea. So Jesus is using parables, he's teaching in parables um, to those who are on the outside, they get everything in parables, but through the parables, To you, to the disciples, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. 
In other words, Jesus is teaching these parables to teach something about the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now let's talk about that phrase. First of all, the word mystery describes something previously not revealed that's now been revealed. That's what a mystery is. So Jesus is talking about something that was previously unknown, but now he's making known, and it's about the kingdom of God. Now, very generally, the kingdom of God describes the rule of God. But if you're a first century Jew and you hear the phrase, the kingdom of God, immediately your mind goes to the Davidic kingdom, to the Messianic kingdom. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples something about the Davidic kingdom. Now, you and I, let's take a step back. We need to be careful here. Because a lot of people think that we're living right now in the kingdom of God and the messianic kingdom, but that's not the, way, not the position we hold here at Grace Bible Church. What we need to understand, and put your scholar hat on for just a minute, uh, but when Jesus came, he offered the messianic kingdom. But as you read the stories of scripture, the, unfortunately, the Jewish people rejected the king, and so the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom, has been postponed. It's awaiting fulfillment. It will happen when Jesus returns and the nation of Israel accepts him. But here in this moment, as Jesus is speaking these words, he's talking about the the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God. But he's talking about things regarding the kingdom of God that were formerly a mystery that he's now revealing. And then I also want you to skip down to verse 21, which helps a little bit explain why Jesus is using these parables. Verse 21, John Mark tells us that he, Jesus, was saying to them, to his disciples, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Now this is where it gets really confusing. If you're confused already, just wait. Because now Jesus, in order to explain why he's using parables, tells another parable. Like, this gets real deep, right? To explain why he's communicating in parables, he tells another parable. He tells a parable of a lamp, and he says, listen, you don't bring a lamp to put it under a basket or under a bed, right? No, you put a lamp on a lampstand because it illuminates, it reveals what's in the room. And Jesus explains that's why he's using parables, to reveal information. He's teaching in parables to reveal information and then notice how you respond to the parables, verses 24 and 25. By the standard of measure, it will be measured to you and you will be given more. For whoever has to him more shall be given and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus is laying out this principle with his disciples. He says, listen, I'm going to teach you parables. The parables are going to reveal information. And if you respond to that information, I'll give you more. But if you don't respond to that information, then what you have will be taken away. 
And we see this played out in verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he, Jesus, was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. But he did not speak to them without a parable. He was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So these verses really summarize Jesus' use of parables. Notice his practice was to speak in parables to the multitudes of people. But then privately, he would pull his disciples aside. Those who had an ear to hear, those who wanted to know more information, would come to Jesus and he would explain these parables to them in private. Now, much more information could be said on how to interpret parables. This is a very complex topic. But rather than bore you with all of the scholarly debate, let's just jump right in and look at the parable of the soils where we see how this is played out. Look at number two on your outline. Mark chapter four, back up to verse three. Mark chapter four, verse three. Jesus says, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So at first glance, this is just a simple story. It's an agricultural tale. It's not all that complex. You can picture it in your mind, and that's exactly what a parable is designed to to be. But like I said, a parable is not just a simple story. It's a story that demands deep contemplation. It's a story that invites action or response in behavior and attitude. And so Jesus, when he tells this story, when he tells this parable, he has much more in mind than originally one might think. So thankfully, verse 14, he begins to explain the parable of the soils. Again, his disciples come up to him and they want to know what this parable means. Verse 13, he says to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Thankfully, they didn't understand because I don't either. But thankfully, Jesus explains. Verse 14, Jesus says, the sower sows the word. The sower in the story sows the word, the word of God. So the seed that the sower is sowing is the word of God. The sower, by the way, is not identified, but almost every scholar of the parables believes that the sower is Jesus. Jesus, throughout the gospel of Mark, has been sowing the seed. He's been going around, remember chapter three, he's been going around teaching and preaching in all the synagogues, teaching the word of God. So Jesus is the sower. But once we come to the great commission, By extension, 
all followers of Jesus are sowers as well. So the sower sows the seed, which is the word of God, and the field represents the various people who hear the word. The first soil is interpreted in verse 15. Jesus says, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So remember, remember in the first parable, the soil, the first soil, the birds come in and eat up the soil or the seed, right? So Jesus here identifies the birds as Satan. Jesus says, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. So the sower is scattering his seed and some seed falls upon this part of the road and, and, and birds come in, Satan comes in and takes away the word immediately. So in effect, there's no response. There's no faith. The second soil Jesus interprets in verses 16 and 17 He says, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves and are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So here the second soil, Jesus describes those on the rocky soil. The sower sows the seed, some of the seed falls upon the rocky soil, and notice they receive it with joy. These are people who receive the word with joy, which leads me to believe that they are believers. But sadly, the sun-scorched heat of affliction and persecution causes them to fall away. They're simply not rooted enough in the word to withstand the heat of persecution and so they fall away. And I'm sure every one of us, you have times in your life or people in your life right now who come to mind. The third soil we see interpreted in verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So again, the sower sows the the seed, and some seed falls upon the thorns, which Jesus identifies here as the distracting worries of this life the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for all sorts of other things. And these distractions choke the word and make it unfruitful. Finally, we come to the fourth soil, verse 20. Jesus says, those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it. And they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So these are the people, by contrast, who hear the word, they accept it, 
and they produced a, a crop, a spiritual fruit. They yield returns of 30, 60, or 100-fold, which was tremendous return. This, obviously, is the soil we all want to be, right? This is the most desirable soil, the good soil. Now, the big debate, the big question that scholars often argue back and forth with is, well, which of the soils are unbelievers and which are believers? And my take on it is that, first of all, the parable of the soils is really focused on the varying responses. It's not really soteriological. But, notice again, the second soil receives the word, which leads me to believe that it's a believer. And like I said, I think that all of us, if we're honest can think of times in our life when we, like the second soil, get sidelined because of our faith, or in our faith because of persecution. I think all of us, if we're honest, admit that we can get distracted in our faith by the things of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of the world. And so that's my take on it. I do think the second, third, and fourth soils are believers but at the end of the day, if we all just were the fourth soil, we don't have to worry about it, right? <laughs> at the end of the day, the most desirable soil is to be the one that yields spiritual crop. As we take a step back from the parable of the soils, I do think the main point is that as the sower sows the seed, as Jesus spreads the message, and as by, by extension, as you and I spread the message of Jesus, what we need to understand is that there will be varying results. There will be varying responses. And so in terms of application, I have just a couple of thoughts for you. First, I'd encourage you to take a little more time this week and to go through the parable of the soils and honestly ask yourself, am I rooted in the word of God enough to endure persecution when it comes? Am I rooted enough, deeply enough in the word of God to endure persecution when it comes? And number two, how do I allow the worries and wealth of the world to choke out the word in my life? How do I, and we all do, how do we allow the worries and wealth of the world to choke out our faith in the word of God in our life? Another big application I have for you from the parable of the soils is that when you go out and you share the word of God as you share the gospel, you need to go out sowing the seed knowing that not everybody's going to believe. Not everyone's going to become a, fr a fruitful follower of Jesus. Your job, however, remains the same, to share the word of God no matter the response. And that idea then brings us to number three on your outline the parable of the growing seed. The parable of the growing seed. Mark chapter 4, notice verse 26 to begin. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. And he, Jesus, was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. 
But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So here's another parable about seed and soil, right? Very similar to the parable of the soils. But notice the main difference between this parable and the parable of the soils. This parable, which by the way is unique to the gospel of Mark, only Mark tells this parable. This parable focuses in on the growth, the mysterious growth of the seed. So the sower sows the seed, but then he goes to bed. He wakes up by day. Meanwhile, the seed germinates, sprouts, and grows in a way that the sower of the first century does not, under, does not understand and does not know. The sower's concern is not how the seed grows. He just plants the seed and then the harvest comes, right? Now, this is a short parable. Again, it's pretty simple imagery. Unfortunately, like the parable of the soils, unfortunately, Jesus doesn't interpret this one for us. And so many commentators talk about, okay, what's the major point here? Some interpreters argue that this parable focuses in on spiritual growth within each and every individual believer. I'm of the opinion with other scholars that this parable really is a picture of evangelism. The sower goes out and sows the seed. You share the gospel. But God is the one who brings the growth. The promise we see here in this parable is that sowing is enough. Spreading the word of God is enough. And if that step is taken, then God takes over and does the rest. This should be encouraging to us as we share our faith. Sometimes you share your faith and again, it falls on deaf ears. Other times you share your faith and it doesn't look like anything's happening and then weeks or months or years go by and lo and behold, the person becomes a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, right? We can't explain how it happens other than the Holy Spirit working in and through this person. At the end of the day, we can't explain it, but at the end of the day, all we're called to do is to just share the gospel. God brings the growth. Growth. That then brings us to the parable of the mustard seed. Let's take a look at number four on your outline. Mark chapter four, verse 30. And he, Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So here Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed. And again, I'd encourage you after the service to go out on the table and, and, and pick up some of the mustard seed. Just see just how small it is. The mustard seed was in that world, in the first century world, in and around Israel, the smallest garden seed. But amazingly, this tiny mustard seed, which is sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds, it grows up and, uh, and, and it becomes the largest of all the garden plants in Israel. Um, I'm told that uh, a mustard seed can grow to a height of 10 to 12 feet in just a few weeks. 
rapid growth, enormous growth from such a small seed. Again, it's a very simple story. And once again, it's unfortunate that Jesus doesn't interpret it for us. The biggest debate, by the way, among scholars about this particular parable are the birds. Notice again verse 32, birds of the air nest under its shade. Some scholars look at this and say, well, birds in the first parable, the parable of the soils, describe Satan. And so they think it describes Satan here. So Satan comes and finds shade in the branches. That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, So I'm with the group of people who say, no, what I think Jesus is doing here is borrowing from the book of Daniel, uh, where birds represent the Gentile nations. You see this a couple times in the Old Testament, where birds represent the Gentiles. But again, most scholars agree that this particular parable emphasizes a great discernible growth from a very insignificant beginning which once again should be a great encouragement to us as we share the gospel. That this movement of Jesus began with just a few men, 12 men, and yet has literally taken over the world. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And these are the parables of soil and seed that we see here in Mark chapter 4. But let's take a step back and remember the context, right? Remember what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, and now we're introduced to these parables. Why does Mark, why does Jesus use these parables? I think these parables are designed to show why this proclamation of Jesus as he's going around teaching and preaching in the synagogues, why this message of Jesus, the seed that is sown, is on the one hand met with such absolute resistance And why, on the other hand, it's met and we see varying responses. These parables really are stories of the very thing we're reading about here in the Gospel of Mark. Some, like the religious leaders, utterly reject. While others accept it, but in various stages. What we're to be encouraged by is that despite the apparent lack of progress Despite the opposition that we see, God's reign will eventually burst forth in amazing fruitfulness. And that really is the story of the first 2,000 years of the church. I've got a couple application thoughts for you as we take a step back here from these particular parables. I've got one major application from each of these parables, the parable of the soils, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. First, the parable of the soils. Remember that your job is to sow the seed. Your job is to share the gospel freely and openly to all who will listen. Share the gospel knowing that there will be varying responses. Share the gospel and don't be surprised when some people get distracted. Share the gospel knowing that Satan will blind the eyes of some. Share the gospel knowing that persecution will sideline others. Share the gospel knowing that distractions will cause others to lose focus. But share the gospel knowing that some will believe and yield incredible fruit. 
Second, from the parable of the growing seed or the mysterious seed. The application, the encouragement we see here is that as you share the gospel, let God deal with the results. Your job is to spread the word. God's job by the Holy Spirit is to bring about the growth and share the gospel knowing that God wants people to be saved more than you do or I do. You spread the seed, he brings the growth. Third, from the parable of the mustard seed, as you spread the gospel, keep going, knowing that in the end, the gospel of Jesus will prevail. You will meet resistance. People will tell you, no, I'm not interested. You'll see some people come to faith and then uh, fall away. You'll see some people get distracted by worldly things. But our job is to spread the gospel knowing that in the end, Christianity will continue to grow from this small mustard seed of people to thousands, to millions, to billions, and will continue to spread. Now let me tell you a story as we close. Uh, Just this week, I had a friend who had a a family member die who had rejected the gospel all along the way. But this particular family member died, thankfully, and moments before had a deathbed conversion, a deathbed moment of salvation. And I can tell you that as a pastor, I've seen a number of times where this story plays out, where people have rejected the gospel their entire life and yet at the very end come to saving faith in Jesus. Which that in and of itself is an amazing story, right? But what I'm always amazed by are the family members who never lost hope. Maybe their family member had rejected their sharing of the gospel dozens of times, but nevertheless, their loved one didn't lose hope And as their loved one is facing death, instead of giving up, they remained faithful to the end and shared the gospel just one more time. And that just one more time was what it took for the person to finally believe. And listen, Jesus speaks these parabolic words as an encouragement to his followers that even with satanic opposition, even with varying responses from people, this movement of Jesus will continue to grow. Yes, Satan will blind the eyes of some. Yes, others get sidelined by persecution. Yes, others lose their focus by worldly pleasures. But in the end, God will bring about the growth. The gospel will advance and people will come to know Jesus. And I think that is the encouragement these parables bring to encourage us to just go spread the message, to go share the good news, and God will bring the results. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for the incredible privilege we have for inviting us into your mission to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And Father, we go knowing that there will be varying responses. We go knowing that some 
Satan will blind their eyes. We go knowing that some will believe and then fall away. Some will get distracted by the worries of the world. But Father, we go knowing that some will believe and will yield incredible return. And Father, if we're honest, we also confess that in our own life, we're fearful of persecution. We confess that in our own life, we get distracted by the pleasures of the world, by the allure of wealth and the worries of the world. We go uh, as broken vessels. But Father, we go confidently knowing that you love the lost more than we do that you want to see more and more people come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. We go, Father, knowing that you will bring about the growth, the gospel will advance, that people will, praise God, come to know Jesus. And so empower us, Father, by your spirit to go out and to sow the seed, to spread the word. Father, thank you for this amazing privilege we have. We pray that you would help us, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.